We're now about to begin our fifth session in our study on the holiness of God. And what is ironic about this, and perhaps even maddening to you, is that all the way up until this point in our study, I have not begun to define the meaning of the word holy. I've used it. I've tried to stress the importance of it. We've seen the traumatic influence it communicates. We've seen how it relates to justice and to the potential insanity of a man like Martin Luther. But what exactly does the Bible mean by the word holy? I notice in our own language and in our own vocabulary, the term holy seems to be used among us, particularly among Christians, as a synonym for moral purity or for righteousness. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it may be a little bit misleading. Because in the Scriptures, there are two primary or basic meanings to the word holy. And I really shouldn't say two primary. There's one primary and one secondary, two major meanings, if you will, of the term holy. The secondary meaning of this word in Scripture is that which refers to personal righteousness and purity. But the primary meaning of the word holy means separate. Or if you will, theological apartheid. That which is holy is that which is other. O-T-H-E-R. That which is different from something else. And so when the Bible speaks about God's holiness, the primary thrust of those statements is to refer to God's transcendence, to refer to His magnificence, to refer to that sense in which God is higher and superior to anything that there is in the creaturely realm. Again, the simplest way to discuss this is that that which is holy is that which is different. Look through your Bible sometime and see how the term holy is used as an adjective. Not only is God described as holy, we hear about the Holy Spirit, the Holy One of Israel. We hear about holy ground, holy vessels, holy moments. In fact, the anthropologists and sociologists have studied human experience and noticed that all people have some sense of holy time and holy space. Think back to your childhood, to that special place where you wanted to go when your life was troubled. Maybe it was to your room. Maybe it was to a little cozy section in the woods or in the lawn under your favorite tree. Whenever you were depressed or distressed or your parents hollered at you and you wanted to go, go grab the, the kitty cat and go sit and cry, you went to a certain place. And that place took on special significance to you. 
Every year, there's one day in the year that is special in your life. It's your birthday where you celebrate a moment in time that has a special importance to you. And during the course of the year, we as people celebrate what we call what? Holidays. And a holiday means a holy day, a day that is different from the ordinary days, that is special, that's set apart for a particular kind of remembrance. Sacred space, sacred time, sacred things are all a part of our lives. I remember when I was teaching a course in seminary many, many years ago where I committed the unpardonable sin of a seminary professor. I lost my temper with a student. I mean, I, let me be candid with you. Sometimes, you know, your students say, to me, I don't want to ask a, a, a dumb question. And I say, now look, don't ever be embarrassed to ask me a question. The only dumb question is the one you're really afraid to ask. I mean, any question that you have, it's important to you. It's important to me. And I really believe that, that I should take seriously any question that a student raises. But every now and then, ladies and gentlemen, you really do get a dumb question. <laughs> and, uh, and it is my task as a professor to, again, treat the student with dignity. But I had a student once that made me lose it. I was lecturing on the Lord's Supper. And his question was not so much a question as an expression of unbridled cynicism. He put his hand up and I acknowledged it and he says, what's the big deal about bread and wine? Why do we have to do that? Why can't we just have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and Coca-Cola? That's when I lost it. I just felt this rage just flowing up out of my soul. He graded my sensitivity when he said that, and instead of giving a polite, genteel, professorial response to him, I said, you want to know why we don't have peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and Coca-Cola at Holy Communion? Because Jesus never consecrated peanut butter and jelly or Coca-Cola. I swear to kill him. <laughs> Why? Because he had just profaned with his question something that was precious and holy in my experience. But what is it that makes the bread and the wine so special? What is it that makes any moment in history so special? What is it that makes a piece of real estate holy ground. Why is it that Noah marked the spot where he landed with and built an altar and Abraham built an altar to God? Why is it that we are drawn to take something that is common and make it extraordinary because of its significance? It's not because of the intrinsic value of these objects, but what makes something sacred, what makes something holy is the touch of God upon it. When the one who himself is other and different touches that which is ordinary, it becomes extraordinary. When he touches you, you become 
uncommon. And so the difference between the profane and the holy is the difference between the common and the uncommon, between the earthy and the heavenly. Not too long ago, I saw a study of phobias in the United States where the 10 most common phobias were listed, the things that people were most frightened about. You know, fear of cats, fear of you know, claustrophobia, clear, fear of crowded spaces and so on, fear of death. Do you know what the number one fear of was, incidentally, of American people? The number one phobia? The fear of standing in front of a group and giving a talk like I'm doing right now. It's awful. But there is a phobia called xenophobia. How many of you have never heard that word before? Xenophobia. Okay, those of you who don't have your hands on, I'm going to call to ask you to give a... <laughs> I've got a whole lot more hands up in the air. Xenophobia is the fear of strangers or foreigners. We have a tendency to be frightened by people whose customs are different from ours. And the supreme form of xenophobia that we have is our fear of the living God because He is so different from us. He is high and exalted. One of the most fascinating studies that I've ever read, and I would commend to you for your uh, careful attention, is a book that appeared early in the 20th century by a German theologian who was also an anthropologist. His name was Rudolf Otto, and he wrote a very little book, but a, a book that many theologians consider one of the most important books of the 20th century. Very skinny little book, and the original title was called simply Das Heilige, translated into the English under the title, The Idea of the Holy. And what Otto did was this that I found so interesting, was that he went around and he examined people from different cultures, Aborigines, uh, Europeans, different people, and tried to find out what they regarded as holy or sacred in their culture. And then he did studies phenomenologically to see what the normal human reactions are to the holy. And then after making this study, he tried to distill the essence of human experience of the holy and come up with some conclusions. And one of the conclusions, he used to do this by inventing uh, phrases to describe these things. And when, if you would ask Rudolf Otto, Mr. Dr. Otto, what is the holy? The answer he gave was this, that the holy is the mysterium Tremendum. I have a Latin phrase for everything. Mysterium tremendum. Now, what does he mean by that? He said that the experience that we have of the holy is an experience of something very strange and impossible to penetrate and to fathom. It is mysterious but it is also powerful 
And this awesome, mysterious power provokes a sense of fear within us. Listen to how Otto describes it. This, what he calls the awful mystery. He says this, the feeling of it may at times come sweeping like a gentle tide, pervading the mind with a tranquil mood of deepest worship, where it may pass over into a more set and lasting attitude of the soul, continuing as it were thrillingly vibrant and resonant until at last it dies away and the soul resumes its profane, non-religious mood of everyday experience. Can you relate to that? Everybody in this room has had those pregnant moments of awareness of the presence of God, haven't you? They're not part of our ordinary daily experience. Ordinary experience, even for the most devout Christian, is basically profane. We're not flooded every second in our soul with this acute sense of the presence of God. And yet every Christian knows what it means to have that precious moment of awareness of the presence of God. But it's fleeting. He says, it may burst in sudden eruption up from the depths of the soul with spasms and convulsions or lead to the strangest excitements, to intoxicated frenzy, to transport into ecstasy. It has its wild and demonic forms and can sink to an almost grisly horror and shuddering and so on. He describes the fact that not everybody responds in the same way to an awareness of the holy. Some people become whirling dervishes in all kinds of flamboyant activity. Other people are moved to absolute silence and contemplation. But what he detected in this study of the holy is this, that across the boards, throughout varying civilizations, the basic response of human beings to whatever they consider holy, to be holy, is a response of ambivalence. Ambivalence meaning this, that we have conflicting feelings about the holy that there is something about the holiness of God that attracts us. But there's also something about the holiness of God that repels us and frightens us. On the one hand, it fascinates, and on the other, it terrifies. Have you know, ever wondered about the, the way in which we, we sometimes like to scare ourselves? Little kids wanting to get together and tell ghost stories. Have you seen them do that? I remember when my son was a little boy, he wanted to sleep out in the woods behind our, our place in Ligonier. And so one of the college students said, I'll take you up there in the woods. And they went up and they pitched a tent and they got their sandwiches and flashlights and canteens and went up there about midnight. And at midnight, you know, they got the bedrolls out. And, and my son says to the college student, Joe, and he said, yeah, he said, tell me a ghost story. <laughs> so Joe started telling about the guy who lost his liver, you know, went around, I want my liver back, right? <laughs> And uh, everybody's heard that ghost story. And, and so my son listens to this, and he's fascinated by it. And when Joe finished the story, my son looked at him and said, Joe? He said, you know, maybe sleeping out here tonight isn't such a good idea. <laughs> 
Joe said, that's all right, you just go to sleep. And so they were quiet for a few minutes and my son had the opportunity to fit, concentrate his mind on the ghost story, on the noises of the woods and the things that go bump in the night. And he lasted about 10 more minutes until they were down knocking at our back door asking if they could come in. Do you know that people go to Disney World in Orlando and pay money to be frightened? <laughs> Isn't that strange that we have this dualistic attitude toward the holy. I like to remember the old radio program. Some of you with uh, snow on the roof will remember those uh, wonderful days of yesteryear when the Lone Ranger, you know, would uh, come riding down the road or we listened to the soap operas in the afternoon. Do you remember them, ladies? Huh? Uh, young Dr. Malone and Ma Perkins and Helen Trent and our gal Sunday and and uh, uh, backstage wife, Larry said to Mary, Mary. And Mary said to Larry, Larry. That's what we listened to. <laughs> Do you remember? Huh? Pepper Young's family, how many of you remember those? Huh? They were terrific. Well, at nighttime, you had the adventure stories, like Superman and, and so on. And, and through the week, we would have cops and robbers, gangbusters, Mr. Keene, tracer of lost persons. And, and there was a movie that was particularly scary, or a program particularly scary, called Suspense. But the scariest program of all scary programs on the radio in the 40s, ladies and gentlemen, came on Sunday night. And the lead-in to this radio program featured the sound of this creaky vault door opening in an echo chamber. And it opens up, and you know, and you're just, your hair standing on end before the thing starts, and the voiceover comes with the announcer's baritone voice saying, Inner Sanctum. Huh? You remember, how many of you remember that? Okay. <laughs> I mean, they didn't even have to start the story, and everybody was scared already. <laughs> what does inner sanctum mean? Inner sanctum means, literally, within the holy. See, the marketing geniuses of the entertainment world discovered somehow that the most terrifying thing they could come up with for people would be to expose them to a program about the holy. See, that's why we have a tendency to keep our distance, a safe distance from the character of God. Because even though we're attracted to it, on the one hand, on the other, we are repelled by it. And I'm going to talk in our next session about how that manifested itself concretely and specifically in the life of Jesus, where people were both drawn to him and terrified of him. And yet it is this element that we fear that is at the very core of the character of God. And for us to understand it, beloved, is set forth for us in the New Testament as the priority of learning. 
I ask my students in the seminary a simple question from the Bible. I say, everybody's aware of the, the Lord's Prayer, and the Lord's Prayer can be divided up, according to literary categories, from the formal address to the petitions to the closing. And I ask my students, what is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? Do you know what? Don't answer it out loud, but think in your own mind. Do you know what the first petition is of the Lord's Prayer? Remember the scene. The disciples have observed Jesus in his astonishing power, and they come to him, and they notice this link between his power and his devotion to prayer. And so they come to him, and they say, Jesus, teach us how to pray. And he said, okay, I'll teach you how to pray. When you pray, I want you to pray like this. Our Father with art in, who art in heaven, then what? Hallowed be thy name. Now, here's the question. Is the hallowed be thy name part of the form of address, or is the hallowed be thy name the first petition? See, if it were part of the formal address, Jesus would have said this. He would have said, when you pray, say this, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed is your name. But that's not what he said. He said, when you pray, I want you to pray this. The first thing I want you to pray for when you get on your knees is that the name of God would be treated as sacred, as holy. Repeatedly, the Bible says of God, holy is his name. Another little quiz I have with my students, I said this, suppose in this day and age in the United States of America where we've had such a flood and proliferation of legislation in the land that nobody can keep up with all the new laws that are being added to the, to the law books every year. Suppose somebody came along and said, hey, we're going to start all over again. We're going to just throw out all the lawyers, all the laws, even the Constitution, and we'll start fresh. But your job is to write the new Constitution. Your job is to write the new Bill of Rights. And the game plan is this, that all future laws in this nation's history will be judged by their conformity to 10 laws that you draw up. So you only have 10 laws to put down on the books. What 10 would you write? How many of you would waste one of your 10 by making a law against coveting? How many of you would include in your top ten a law that children ought to respect and obey their parents? Most of you would probably include a law prohibiting murder and theft. But would anybody use up one of their top ten laws by saying that it's an absolute law of the land that no one ever, ever, ever takes the name of God in vain. Ladies and gentlemen, when God wrote a constitution for a national government, that made his top ten. Isn't that incredible? 
A few years ago, I read an astonishing article in Time magazine about an incident that took place in Maryland. A truck driver had been arrested for drunken and disorderly conduct. And when the police officers came to arrest him, this, drunk, this truck driver was so abusive that they were furious by the time they got the guy to the station house and they wanted to throw the books at, book at him. So they got him up before the magistrate and they talked about all the, the unkind things that this truck driver had said about the policeman on the way down. Now, for the, for the uh, misdemeanor of, of disorderly conduct, the severest penalty that the magistrate could impose was a $100 fine and 30 days in jail. But he wanted to nail this guy, to throw the book at him, and so he resurrected an antiquated law that had never been repealed and was still on the books of the statutes of, of Maryland that prohibited public blasphemy. And the penalty for public blasphemy had been another 30 days in jail and another $100 fine. So the, the judge imposed upon the truck driver $200 fine, 60 days in jail. And this made Time Magazine's editorial because the editor of Time was outraged that in this day and age, somebody could suffer the cruel and unusual punishment of paying a $100 fine and spending 30 days in jail merely for publicly blaspheming the holy name of God. We've come a long way. Twenty-two years ago, the word virgin was not permitted to be uttered on the television because it was too provocative and suggestive. Censorship has changed so much in our day that movies may freely use erotic language, scatological language, and blasphemous language, and that's okay. But still, there are rules and regulations for broadcast television that prohibits the use of certain purient and obscene sexual language. But it is still permitted on the television set to use the name of God as a common curse word. Jesus said, you know what I want you to pray for? I want you to pray that my Father's name will be regarded as holy. He said, then I want you to say... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. So what I want my people to be praying for is that my reign, my sovereignty, my authority as king will be honored and recognized in this world. And that will people will do my will on this planet, even as the angels in heaven right now obey my will. You know... Jesus doesn't say so, but I'm convinced there's a, a logical progression here. I don't think that the kingdom of God will ever come on this earth or that the will of God will ever be done on this earth until or unless the name of God is revered by his people. How is it possible for people to honor a king and at the same time desecrate his name? You know, it's not like the Jewish people had some name fetish or that they believed that there was some magic associated with the utterance of a word. But they understood this as God understood it, that if we have a cavalier, casual attitude 
toward the name of God, that reveals more deeply than anything else we say about our deepest attitude toward the God of the name. Let me tell it like it is. If you use the name of God as a common curse word, you are at root a profane person. You have no respect for the holiness of God. And I urge you to think before you let that word pass over your lips again in a frivolous manner. Because God will not tolerate the desecration of his name. He made it in the top ten. And so Jesus says that you would pray that the name of God would be holy, that it would be treated as different, as special, as extraordinary, as exalted, because he is different and special and exalted. When we are called to be holy, we are called to be different. We are called to bear witness to the style that one finds in God, a style that is driven by the second meaning of holiness, which is righteousness. When God says, be holy for I am holy, he is saying, be different from the normal standards of this world. I want you to express and to show what righteousness is in this land. That's the task of the Christian, to mirror and to reflect the character of God to a dying world. Let's pray. Our Father, again, we ask your pardon for the way in which we have profaned your name in word and in deed and in thought. And we pray that you would give us a holy respect for you, that in our land, to some degree and by some measure, we may see the manifestation of your kingship and your will being done. For we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.